And we are closing out First Peter today, and there's a lot of things that we've looked at in First Peter, a lot of common themes, a lot of consistent themes, and, but I believe that right here in, in verse 12, you have what really is the theme of this letter. The reason of Peter writing this letter is to put forth the true, the true grace of God, to make his readers understand the grace that they had been shown and thus to stand firm in this grace. You, you, you've seen this theme throughout the letter, chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come. Verse 13, there, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as a fellow heir of grace. Chapter 4, verse 10, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Verse 10 of chapter 5, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Grace is what sets Christianity apart, really, from every other false religion. The distinctive of Christianity, it's grace. And, and you see this in Acts, really, uh, they use it as a summary of, of, really, the Christian message. In Acts chapter 14, verse 3, he writes, Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. In Acts 20, verse 24, you see it as well. He says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of this Bible, the one true gospel, it's centered upon grace. And, and, and we need an understanding of that. As soon as I say that, your minds can go to a million different places. We, we need a solid biblical understanding of what I mean that. When I say the gospel of, of grace, when, when that's in the Bible, what does he mean by that? And that's, that's what Peter, while he writes, the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so you'll see on your handout the main point, the primary thing that Peter offers to believers in the face of opposition is the believer's immense resource of God's true grace. What God has given us more than anything else, all of it could be summed up right here, put into the same bucket, grace. It's grace. It underlines everything that Peter has said over these five chapters. Grace, everything that Peter has said, everything that Peter has commanded, everything that Peter has called us to do is, is summed up and equipped in grace. The resource that God has provided you and I in order for us to stand firm in the midst of whatever we face, opposition, unjust suffering, bad marriages, bad bosses, bad government, suffering because we're doing what is right, wherever, whatever it is, whatever the source, the resource 
that God has given you to stand firm in is grace. And again, Peter writes that this is, he's writing about the true grace of God. That, by the very nature, implies that there is a false grace. And I think if we looked around today, everywhere, everywhere you're seeing that false grace taught and purported. I mean, you look, at, you look over even, in, in, in the Bible warns of this, of this. In Jude chapter 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who, listen, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. An abuse of grace. False grace. One of the ways, again, we looked at it a couple, last week, one of the ways that Satan seeks to devour us, one of the ways that he masquerades 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen as an angel of light is through doctrine that abuses grace. Misunderstanding of grace. Look with me, and at, at, it'll come up on the board there on the screens. Listen to Titus 2, chapter 11. I mean, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. It says the grace of God appeared, making a way for men, that's what he's saying, making a way for sinful men and women to be saved. But, but, and so many of us stop there. Great Grace is not simply just the means through which we are saved. Grace is the means through which we live as saved individuals. It still goes back to grace. The gospel is not simply the means by which we get saved. The gospel is the means, is the resources by which we live as saved individuals. Look Again, what does he say in Titus 2.11? What does the grace of God do? It teaches us to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. It teaches us to fix our hope on what is to come. Grace does that. It's not, it's not just get saved and now I can live however I want to live. That's an abuse of grace. That's a misunderstanding of God's grace. God's grace forgives us of our sin, but it also fuels and enables us to deny our sinful passions and desires, to crucify the flesh. Grace does that. God's grace does that. Even Ephesians 2, 89, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works, lest anyone would boast. But don't stop there. For by grace, verse 9, you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works so that anyone would boast. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. How do you walk in those? Grace. It's grace. If we were to look at 2 Peter 1, 3, he would, he would write, seeing that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through a true knowledge of the word. Grace. 
The, the point is that God's grace, and you see it on a handout, God's grace is not something that is to be taken for granted. It's to equip believers to stand firm in the face of the opposition, to equip believers to deny ungodliness and live a godly, sensible life in the, mi- in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. It's God's enablement to stand firm in the midst of that. And, and if we're honest, that's oftentimes, listen, that's oftentimes how we view grace. We take it for granted. Or we see the gospel as something we get saved by, but not something that we live by. It's the power of forgiveness, but okay, now I need something to live. God's grace is that power to live as a believer. And you see it on your handout. We tend to view grace as a license to do what we want, if we're honest. We look at grace as God's enablement for us to do what we want. But yet the biblical authors view grace as an enablement for us to do what God wants. Divine enablement. I mean, grace is the key. Everything that Peter has addressed in this letter is, is fueled, is enabled by grace. Every single time that we, look, we looked at those five or six mentions, every single time the grace of God is seen in a practical sense, equipping the believer to do something, equipping the believer to withstand something. Grace. Crucial, crucial to our, to our lives as believers. How do we see grace? How do we define grace? I think many of us would say a a definition would be um, unmerited favor or undeserved favor. But you also begin to see in 1 Peter that God's grace is also, not only is it unmerited or undeserved favor, but it's divine enablement. God also gives you the ability to do what he calls you to do. But if we went back again to 2 Peter 1.3, all of that, again, he goes through the true knowledge of him who called us. It's through an understanding of the gospel, through an understanding of the word. Word filled, Colossians 3.16, that the word of God would richly dwell within you, that it would control you, see Ephesians 5.18. Again, it all goes back to the word, but it's grace. A good synonym for grace, it could be divine help. Divine help. Again, not only for the forgiveness of my sin, but to live out this Christian life as was intended, as we saw in Titus 2, to deny worldly pleasures, to deny the flesh. You see this all throughout. Go to Galatians 5.16. Do not walk walk by the Spirit. Do not walk by the flesh and satisfy its desires, but instead walk by the Spirit. Again, God's divine enablement to crush the flesh. How? Walk by the Spirit. What is walking by the Spirit? It's God's Word richly dwelling within us, controlling us. That which fills us begins to control us and empower us. Again, Galatians 5, the fruit of the what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If you were to go to verse 19, he directly contrasts that to the fruit of the flesh. But it's, it's divine enablement. 
And Peter is writing that we would understand all of this is undergirded, everything is undergirded by grace. And the main purpose, you see it on the handout, of this epistle was to strengthen the readers so they, they would persevere through their persecution with the right attitude, that they would have the right attitude, that they would see themselves as aliens, that, that they would see themselves as strangers, that they would see themselves as sojourners, that they would see themselves as weird in this world that they would even then begin to look at trials with the right attitude and that they would rejoice in them. The thought, the weirdness, rejoice in trials, yeah. When you understand grace, when you understand God's enablement, when we, as we'll see when you recall back to 1 first, to first Peter 1, 6 and 7 of how God uses trials to purify, to strengthen, grace, grace. But again, all of that is weird. I mean, go back to the very definition of what we said weird was. At the very first time we met, we said weird was what? Weird was of supernatural origin. It was uncanny. God is giving us the divine enablement to live supernatural lives in this world. In the midst of a wicked, perverse generation, He has given us everything we need to stand firm. All the divine enablement we need to persevere, to stand firm. And what Peter is saying, and more than anything else, is, believer, equip yourself with God's grace to stand firm. Understand God's grace. If you're going to stand firm in your weirdness, you're going to need to understand grace. And that's what God has offered, grace. If we were to, if we were to summarize it, if we were to, to put a label over it, we would go to 2 Corinthians 12, and where Paul writes, My grace, your grace is sufficient. For your power, Paul says, is perfected in my weaknesses. Three times Paul implored the Lord, please take this thorn, take this thorn, take this thorn. What was God's answer? My grace is sufficient, Paul. I'm not going to take the thorn. The thorn is going to keep you humble. The thorn is going to keep you reliant on me. But here's the point, Paul. I am going to give you my grace, and my grace is going to be sufficient for you to live with the thorn. For my grace, it says is perfected in your weakness. So what does Paul say? Therefore, I will boast. I will gladly boast, I believe he says. I will, therefore, I will gladly boast about my weakness. Why? Because your strength is perfected and made great in my weakness. Grace. All throughout the Bible, the divine enablement that God offers us is grace, believer. It's grace. It's, an, it's a deep understanding of his grace. So real quickly, I want us to see that this morning. Three things. That first thing is characteristics of God's grace. You see that in point number one. We're given a tremendous picture in 1 Peter. And I'm using this as kind of an overview, a review. I don't want us to just run away from 1 Peter. Let's, let's, let's look at these things one more time. The characteristics of God's grace that equips us to stand firm. And the first thing, right off the bat, here's what Peter shows us. That grace originates in and flows from God. You go back to the very first very first. Uh, verse, he says that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and being sprinkled with his blood. Who, who originated this relationship? Who originated this adoption? God did. It's God's idea. Who took care of everything for you to be adopted? God took care of that. 
Go to Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, before the whole foundation of the world. God chose that. It originates in God. John 1.16 says, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Everything you need to get through the day, every day you wake up, God has allotted you a measure of grace to get through the day if you'll tap into that grace, if you'll trust and rely on that grace. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, it says he lavished his grace upon us in Jesus Christ. He didn't just give us a little teeny measure. He lavished his grace upon us in Jesus Christ. This is a God-initiated relationship. He chose us. And you think about adoption. You don't adopt a child and then not take care of that child on a daily basis. That's the whole point. Day by day by day, God is taking care of of his children, but it originates, grace originates in God. Grace also fuels confidence. It fuels confidence. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. As to this salvation, we saw the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. They were not serving themselves. You go to verse 13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely. How are we equipped to do that? By fixing our hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts that were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy. What fuels that? Grace. God's grace fuels that. I mean, even verses, the, the confidence, and look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I want to read these real quickly. The, the, this is all grace, and God gives this to us through 1 Peter to build confidence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, again, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see the confidence that God is giving us in grace? Fueling us. The assurance that you and I have as believers that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. All grace. But not only does it originate for God, and not only does it fuel confidence, but God's grace is witnessed by the world through our conduct. Please see the import of how we live. We, 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 God's grace fuels us to live differently. Why? To declare the excellencies of the one who has called us. I mean, go to verse 22 of chapter 1. I, I have lots of verses written down here. You can look at 15 through 18. For the sake of time, look at 22 through 23. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for which you have been born, for you have not been born again, not of a seed which is, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word. You, you go to chapter 2, verse 9. You're a royal, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation, a people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the domain of darkness into the marvelous light. 
God's grace is to be manifested in our obedience, in our lives. It's to be witnessed. There ought to be something about our lives where people around us want some of that grace. They want that divine enablement. And it's to be witnessed. Again, think about it in that context. The submissive conduct of servants even under bad masters. The submissive conduct of under wives even under bad husbands. The submissive conduct of husbands submitting to, uh, serving their wives sacrificially, which was unheard of then. All manifestations of God's grace. A husband treating his wife as a fellow heir of God's grace, unheard of in that day. A manifestation of God's grace. Patient enduring under trials, manifestation of God's grace. Not returning insult for insult, manifestation of God's grace. Standing firm in the midst of trials, manifestation of God's grace. What fuels that? Grace. Knowing that we have an inheritance. That we have a future that's been secured. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That the answer to the how question is God's grace. It's the gospel. It's the divine enablement to, to, to do whatever God has called us to do. Why? Because I have an, a, an inexhaustible resource of God's grace, of His divine enablement to do whatever He has called me to do. But you see, not only, not only the, the witness uh, through the world and fuels our confidence, and, and, but it perfects our character and purifies our faith. Even in 1 Peter 4.10, we said each of you are to serve others with whatever gift you have received. What? Manifesting God's grace in its various forms. Each of you is to serve others with whatever gift you have received. Manifest, why? Manifestation of God's grace. 1 Peter 4.10. You go back to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. How do we rejoice in trials? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Why do we rejoice in trials? Because God's up to something. He's up to something. If not anything else, you know what he's doing? In trials, he's burning off all the junk that I trust in, all the junk that I rely in apart from him. It may be my health. It may be my status. It may be money. It may be a reputation. All things that you and I have a tendency to trust in and rely in, and we're great as long as, hey, as long as I got money in the bank, who cares? That's, a, that's called idolatry. And God in His graciousness and His awesomeness as a father might just take you through a trial to burn off that dross. Why? So you'll not trust in the strength of the horse or a man's own wisdom or the strength of a man, but that you'll trust in the greatness of your God. That might be what God does in a trial. And he's perfectly good. Listen to me. He's perfectly good and righteous to do that. 
And if we were honest, we do the exact same things with our kids. Our kids may ask us things, and you know what we tell them? No, they don't have a clue why, and they think we're mean, and they think we're the worst parents in the world, and they have no clue that we're protecting them. They have no clue what we're trying to do for them. And they may not ever understand until they sit in your shoes. And it's God's grace that enables us to stand firm, especially when we don't see Him or understand. Grace perfects our character purifies our faith because it's very easy listen to me it's very easy for our faith to become polluted go to james 2 1 see too that no one adds to his faith a spirit of personal favoritism pure faith god's grace lastly equips the believer to live and obey with courage That's what we saw a couple weeks ago, or last week. Be on your guard and on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for seeking someone to devour. Listen, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same experience of suffering are being accomplished with your brethren all over the world. After you had suffered for a little while, the God of all what? Grace. You see the point? How do we live with courage? Because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We know that these momentary light afflictions, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, are producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Not looking to what is seen, but is unseen. Same exact thing Peter said. Though we do not see him, what do we do? We trust in him. When we're assaulted by the adversary, when we're assaulted by the world... On behalf of the adversary, remember this. We have an adequate source of grace to stand firm. God has given us ample grace to stand firm. Stand firm. Characteristics of God's grace. Understand the characteristics of God's grace. Understand what God is doing and what he's offered in his grace. But not only the characteristics of grace, Peter has equipped us with the sufficiency of God's grace that equips believers to stand firm. More than sufficient. Again, not only in verse 1 does he say we're chosen, in verse 2 he says we have been sprinkled with his blood. Chapter, verse 3, that we have been born, he has caused us to be born again. A total, again, we have been given, you see there, A, the sufficiency, identity, a new identity. All those are new identity. Chapter 2, verse 9, a royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Total new identity, all through grace. When we're in a trial, understand who you are, but to understand whose you are. New identity. That our identity is rooted in God's grace, not in, not in things going well or not going well. It's rooted in grace. But not only do we have a new identity, we have, we have, he has showered his grace upon us in our redemption. In our redemption and having been bought. Look, look at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 1 and remind ourselves of what we read. If you address this father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, listen, here it is, with perishable things like gold or silver from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
For he who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, listen, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Not in the things of this world. When we had this opportunity Thursday evening, I talked to Todd on the way home, and I said, Todd, this was was a buddy of of Todd's, and he had called me up to talk with the guy, and I said, Todd, man, I got to apologize, because, like, I felt like after I shared the gospel with this guy, I was almost trying to talk him out of believing, because, and here's why. I I didn't want to come across this way, but this individual has a very, very, very significant surgery coming up on Wednesday, and it has caused him a ton of anxiety. So we talked about that, but I just shared with him. I said, here's, here's, the number one, here's the number one solution to your anxiety. You have an anxiety greater than just your surgery. You've got an eternal anxiety of if you die, what's going to happen to you? And he said, you're right, Chris. So we shared the gospel. And, and he placed his faith and trust after about two hours. But I, I went on and on to say, listen to me. This does not mean that Wednesday's surgery is going to go well. Please hear me say that. You're not praying this prayer as a magic potion, as this good luck charm that Wednesday surgery is going to go well. If that's what you're believing in right now, you're believing in something outside of God. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that no matter what, my hope is in God. What we get in the gospel is God. Not good surgeries, not financial prosperity, not things go well on this earth. Here's what, here's, I said, here's your greatest source of anxiety. You are an enemy of God because of your sin. You need to be reconciled to God. If that surgery does not go on Wednesday, well on Wednesday, this Bible says you will spend eternity separated from God. That's your greatest need. Be reconciled to God. And he kept saying, I understand that, Chris. I'm like, make sure you understand this. This gospel is not a good luck charm. He's not a genie that we go to and we rub when we need things to be worked out. Our sin has separated us from a holy God. We stand condemned by a holy God apart from the gospel because of our sins. The wrath of God do us because of our sins. I kept telling him, here's what you're saved from. Salvation, you are being saved from the wrath of God due your sins. That's the salvation. And no matter what happens on Wednesday, the gospel allows us to rejoice. I took him to Philippians 1. Hey, Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. Either way, either way, here's the beauty of the gospel. Either way, you win. Either way, Romans 8.37, you overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus Christ who loved you. Grace. Hope. Not only the redemption, but the hope. That's the hope that I offered him. That's the hope that the gospel offers him. Again, 1 Peter 1.3, it says that we have been born again to a living hope. We have a future inheritance that will never, again, you, you get your statements and I get my statements. We have some nominal investments. I looked the other day, I'm like, what am I doing putting my money in that? 
it didn't, the number at the top didn't look like the number looked last, week, last month. It was in the wrong direction. Like, I wanted to look different every month, but not in that direction. Listen, the beauty of the gospel is this. I have an inheritance that will never fade away. Its value and worth will never diminish. It will never be tarnished. It's not based upon stocks and bonds and gold and all this other stuff. It's built upon the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which is unperishing, undefiled, never fading away. It will always be fully sufficient to forgive me of my sin. It alone is sufficient. That's the hope. The outcome of my faith is assured, he says, obtaining, verse 9, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, go to verse 23 of chapter 1. He talks about the living word. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off. Listen, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. It's never changing in value. You and I have been saved in hope. Romans 13, 11. Today, salvation is one day closer, one day nearer than the day before. But not only, not only the redemption, not only our hope, but, we have, but the sufficiency of God's grace that we get to suffer. You see that next on for His glory, that we get to suffer. Even in suffering, God's grace is sufficient. No matter what we face, 2-9, we get to declare the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. You look at 19 and 20 of chapter 2. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. The sufficiency of God's grace that even if we suffer unjustly, it does not attack the sufficiency of God's grace. As we've seen, the matter of fact is that your suffering might actually be, is, out of God's grace. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His name's sake. That word granted to you, by the way, is grace. It has been graced to you, believer, not only to believe in Him. We'd all, and we wished it stopped there, right? Even in Philippians 3.10, he says, I rejoice not only in the power of his resurrection, I wish it stopped there, but Paul goes on to say, but I rejoice in the fellowship of his sufferings. Grace. Grace. If not to purify our faith, to declare the excellencies of the one who called, that we would stand firm, and again, Job 13, I think it's Job, Job 13, 15, Job says, though you slay me, yet I will rejoice I will exalt in the God of my salvation. Think about that. It may be 1513, forgive me. It's 1315 or 1513. Though you slay me, I'll exalt in you. Only the gospel of this gospel of grace provides that. 
E. We've also been given grace that we can cast all our, carries, all our cares and anxieties upon him. We saw that in 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all our anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. Don't, don't pass over that for just a moment. D- Daniel, Daniel read, an, um, Job. the book of Job is amazing. Daniel read a great passage. Because you think about that, not only at the same time God is doing all of that, you know who God cares about? Raymond. Josh. We saw in Colossians 1 that he is, God is carrying everything to its completion. This whole world. And at the same time, he individually cares for you. Psalm 8. What is man? What is man that you're mindful of him or take note of him? Think about that. Right now, this moment, God cares for you individually. Grace. Grace, what are you going through right now? What burden are you bearing unnecessarily on your own? Cast it on God because he cares for you. He has already said again, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 20, or 28, 29. Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants to be your burden bearer. Jesus Christ himself, he is our Sabbath rest. Not only the sufficiency to cast our cares upon him, but to remain fervent in our love for one another. One of the the greatest temptations, and you see this even in, in verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings, so does my son Mark, greet one another with a kiss of love. One of the greatest temptations in persecution, one of the greatest temptations in trials, one of the greatest temptations when things are not going well is for our love for one another, especially within the body of Christ, to grow cold. And it would have been especially a big deal, I believe, in what Peter is writing here, is greet one another with a kiss of love. Because listen to this. What would, if I went up and I kissed you on the cheek, not only would you be appalled at that, but... What is that going to tell the world about you and I? That we're brothers. That we're Christians. You see the point? You see why Peter says, don't stop doing that. Because the, the second persecution comes, the second thing, and you're gonna, your temptation is going to be not to align yourself with that which might cause persecution. And one of the greatest temptations on persecution is for yours and mine's love for one another to grow cold. For us to put a little bit of distance in between us and the source of the trial. It could, be, it could be with Christ himself. It could be with somebody who is suffering. Paul dealt with that in Philippians. The Philippian church was gone when that brother was in jail. I'm not going to align myself with somebody who's sitting in jail. Really? Okay. And so Paul writes the Philippians letter to clear that up. to Really to let them off the hook but also to clear that up. One of the great tendencies for our, is for our love to grow cold. And God's grace equips us to not do that. God's grace equips us to endure. So not only the characteristics of grace, not only the sufficiency of grace, but lastly, Peter writes that we would have a perspective that is fueled by grace. Even when it's hard. 
that we as believers would learn to see ourselves and each other through the lens, through the filter. Even see our trials through the filter of God's grace. And Peter writes to that end. He, it, you see that on your handout. A right view and understanding of God's grace allows us to put the trial in perspective. How many times did, Paul write, did Peter write, rather, though you suffer for a little while? Admit it, when we're in a trial, doesn't it seem like it's forever? When you're in the middle of it, it seems like it's forever. And then on the back side, you're like, well, sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, because there are some trials that, that, that we're in that aren't going to end until we go to heaven. So don't hear me, I'm not trying to trample on that. But sometimes we get through something and you realize, man, that really wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was while I was in it. And here's what Peter is writing. Paul says the same thing, and you know, I read it. 2 Corinthians 4.14, this momentary light affliction, it's momentary and light, listen to me, in view of eternity. It may last your whole 85 years. You may not ever get out from under it for the rest of your lives. And yet God's grace enables us to, have the, to see it in the right perspective, that in view of eternity, that trial will be momentary, and that trial will be light. And we see that again in, in verse 6 of chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even now for a little while you suffer. Chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while. There's coming a day, listen to me, Romans eight eighteen, where the present sufferings will not be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That is our hope. Now, the grace of God allows us to live in and under a trial with that as our hope. And listen to me, these are hard passages. This whole series has been hard to preach for a, lot of, for a lot of reasons. But number one, in a church of this size, I don't know everybody's story, but I know there are people who are dealing with heavy junk that they will battle with for the rest of their lives. And for some, for some of you, it's probably God's grace that allows you to lift your head in the morning. I'm not belittling that. But there's coming a day where the gospel that this Bible offers me, that the, this God offers me, that you'll never mention that trial again in comparison to the grace of God that He reveals to you at your glorification. It will have been worth it. And for some of us, the hope is just to hang in there one more minute. And then to hang in there one more minute. I get that. But God's grace is sufficient for that minute. God's grace is going to be sufficient for the next minute. And God's grace is going to be sufficient for the next minute. Until you see Him face to face. God's grace allows us to put the trial in perspective, in light of eternity, in light of what it's doing, in light of what it's accomplishing, in your faith and other people's faith, a right view and understanding of God's grace also allows us to put God in perspective. We begin to see Him as a God of all grace. We begin to see Him as awesome and beyond compare. We begin to see Him as Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.20, Now to Him who is able to do far more exceedingly beyond everything we ask and think, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, that, again, even here in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever of chapter 5 and ever. 
Even in verse 10, the God of all grace, not some grace, the God of all grace. Put God in perspective. He's able. He's able. He's bigger than what we're battling. He's sovereign over it. A right view C helps us to put God's purpose for you in perspective. He, didn't, he did not call you to, contempt, to condemn you. He called you to bring you to glory. But that doesn't exempt you from trials. That doesn't exempt you from suffering in a foreign land. There's a whole lot of theology out there that's come to Jesus and get, 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 get. Here's what you get. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sin. 2 Timothy 3.12, we say it all the time. Because God is very vulnerable and honest about what you get as being a Christian. He says, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Grasp that. I, I was reading this the other day. I mean, we, we want so badly for us to be liked and everybody to like us and love us. And, and, and churches are trying so hard to, be, to fit in and all this. And here I read... Jesus' own words, these are in red letters, I guess they mean more, according to some songs out there right now. Um, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Listen to this. Woe to you, verse 26 of chapter 6 of Luke. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Hmm, a little different mentality. Jesus says, you, gotta, you ask yourself some hard questions when everybody says good things about you. Because the moment you confront them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the moment you tell them there's one way that they can be saved, they ain't going to speak well about you. You can feed them, you can clothe them, you can do a whole lot of things. You separate from the gospel, they'll speak well of you. The moment you connect it to the gospel, woe. Whoa. Now, certainly we've seen it. That doesn't mean I go out there and be a jerk. But the gospel's weird. Christians are called to be weird. They ought to be talking about us. And it's not always going to be good. But make sure when we suffer, that's why Peter wrote, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or as a thief or as a wrongdoer. What's he saying? Suffer the, for the right reasons. And God's grace is sufficient. Understand your purpose for you. But understand God's purpose, D, for your trials. And, and, and we won't harp on this long. We've seen it. God's up to something. He's always, it's not wasted. It's not accidental. God has not lost control in your trials. So I'm going to close this series out with a couple quick points, and we'll get out of here. Forgive me. Uh, grow group leaders, forgive me. Real quickly. Last couple of things, and let's close. I want to leave us with some things to stand firm, to help us to stand firm. Just practical points. Um, and, and, and these were in a... a generally in a book that I was reading. I modified them a little bit, but generally they were in this book that I was reading. So I want to give credit to that one, but a guy by the name of Sanchez. But 
Listen, know that while the world may take everything away from us, it cannot take away our glorious identity and perishable future. Stand firm in this grace. Know that while, the wor- while this world may kill us, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ to an imperishable inheritance. Stand firm in this grace. Know that God does not waste suffering, but rather purifies our faith in order that we would obtain our future salvation when Christ is revealed. Stand firm in this grace. Know that you are not alone in your suffering, that your Savior Jesus Christ walked this same road marked with suffering and has set for us an example to follow. Stand firm in this grace. Know that if we suffer for doing what is good in God's eyes, then we are blessed and will be exalted to glory just as Christ was. Stand firm in this grace. Know that as we share in Christ's sufferings, we prove that we are Christians. Stand firm in this grace. Know that by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, no matter what that might bring, we will one day be exalted. Stand firm in this grace. That's First Peter. That's what Peter has equipped us to do. And I pray that I did it justice. I pray that I was honest to the text. I pray that though you may not grasp all of that, I pray that as we sojourn together that we will grasp the awesomeness of God, the awesomeness of His grace that we'll understand the characteristics of God's grace, that we'll understand the sufficiency of God's grace, and that will allow us to have a right perspective as we sojourn in this life. Even in suffering, even in trials, that we would be a people collectively that stands firm, that we would be a people that helps each other and encourage each other to stand firm.